Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Columbus, Ohio is Beth Kastner, a member of Epstein, Becker & Green. And joining us from Cincinnati is Shannon DeBra, who is Senior Counsel at Epstein, Becker & Green. And today we're going to be talking about patient steering and charting. First, uh, Shannon, Beth, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Adam. We're happy to be here. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for inviting us. Very happy to have you, and this is a really interesting topic. Uh, Beth, why don't we start with you? You know, it, it's important for hospitals and post-acute care providers to work together to ensure proper patient care, of course. But there are limits, and, and one risk area which you delved into recently for the HCCA magazine is patient steering. Can you define what it is and what compliance teams need to be on the lookout for? Sure, I'm happy to do that, Adam. So there is no uniform or regulatory definition of patient steering. That said, CMS has informally defined patient steering as the practice of directing patients and or their caregivers to PAC providers in a way that doesn't align with the patient's goals of care or the patient's treatment preferences. And patient steering can be more generally described as otherwise inappropriately influencing a patient or their caregiver's choice of provider. So what are some examples of inappropriate steerage? It would include things such as a hospital referring a Medicare patient to a particular hospice or SNF based on the financial motives of the hospital instead of making the referral based on what's in the patient's best medical interest. A key compliance consideration when we're talking about patient steerage is whether it violates the CMS conditions of participation that hospitals must comply with. Specifically, we're talking about the Medicare condition of, of participation for discharge planning. The discharge planning COP requires hospitals to assist patients and their families in selecting a PAC provider. In providing this assistance, hospitals must ensure that they use and share certain data about the PAC provider with, with the patients and their caregivers. Hospitals must also remember to always give patients their choice of PAC provider and, generally speaking, prohibits hospitals from, quote, steering patients to any particular PAC provider. So I would say that at its core, the discharge planning COP requires hospitals to provide accurate, unbiased information about available PAC providers. And the idea here being that this information will help discharging patients to select a PAC provider that can meet that particular patient's needs without interfering with the patient's freedom to choose any Medicare participating PAC provider. This type of interference with a patient's freedom to choose a PAC provider could result in a hospital facing possible CMS sanctions up to and including termination of the hospital's Medicare provider agreement. That's right, Beth. So it's important that the hospital and its discharge planning staff ensure that they are doing what CMS expects them to do to demonstrate the hospital's compliance with the discharge planning COP and ensure that patients and their caregivers are getting the information from the hospital that CMS expects to be provided. That's really interesting. And Shannon, I want to follow up on something you mentioned, which is you, you talked about the hospital discharge planners. They're, they're very much at the center of these issues. What do they need to be trained on and monitored for? Sure, and you're absolutely right. They are at the very center of, of much of what we're gonna talk about today. 
The hospital discharge planners need to be trained on the discharge planning COP, and they need to understand their role in ensuring that the hospital meets its responsibilities to CMS and to patients. So they need to understand that they cannot allow staff from referral sources to do their job or any part of it, and they can't allow financial considerations, favoritism, or other considerations to lead to biased discussions or recommendations to the patient or their caregiver. Discharge planners play a very important middleman type role here, as it's helpful for them to have familiarity with, with the post-acute care providers in the area, but they have to make sure they check their biases at the door to ensure they're not compromising the information shared with patients. Just, just one, one thought to piggyback on that. Yeah, thanks, Shannon. The one thing I'd add here is that when, when it comes to the content of the training, for discharge planners, I think it's important to not only cover the underlying compliance considerations that we just discussed, but also include any recent government enforcement actions or cases that are out there. My thought being that giving real life examples, so to speak, will not only keep the training more interesting for the attendees, but also hopefully make it more memorable for the audience. Uh, and real life stories, I think, always are more memorable because they're more relatable. And then there's also a lot of evidence that humans just think in terms of stories and remember them a lot better than they would just a collection of facts and data points. Now, now Shannon, I want to follow up on, on, on something that you mentioned that triggered a thought. Am I right in assuming that there is also anti-kickback risk here? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Efforts to steer patients to a particular post-acute care provider can lead to potential liability under the anti-kickback statute if the steering results from remuneration given in exchange for the referrals. And it's important to remember that under the anti-kickback statute, the term remuneration is interpreted very broadly. It's interpreted as anything of value. So post-acute care providers should be cautious in giving anything of value to hospital personnel as the government could view that remuneration as having been provided with the intent to influence the hospital to refer, in other words, to steer patients to that PAC provider. And on the flip side, hospitals and their discharge planners and other staff must be careful not to accept anything of value from a post-acute care provider that the hospital doesn't pay fair market value for. No free services, no extra help, those types of things can be characterized as something of value, remuneration, in exchange for referrals. For example, post-acute care providers should not provide hospitals with free nursing staff or pay for social workers or other personnel to assist the hospitals with discharge planning or other functions, as this would constitute remuneration from the PAC providers to the hospitals and could be construed as being remuneration provided with the intent to influence the hospital to steer patients to the PAC provider. And this isn't just a theoretical risk. The OIG cautioned about patient steering as a kickback risk as far back as June of 1995 in a special fraud alert on home health fraud, um, where the OIG said the practice of some health, home health agencies at providing hospitals with discharge planners, home care coordinators, or home care liaisons in order to induce referrals was a, an example of a possible kickback. Additionally, you mentioned before, stories of enforcement actions kind of hitting home with people. We've seen at least three in this area regarding patient steering and kickbacks with um, discharge planners and hospitals. In 2016, the Leahy Clinic in Massachusetts entered into a $1.9 million settlement with the OIG following a self-disclosure where the Leahy Clinic um, disclosed having received remuneration from home health agencies 
in the form of free administrative services related to discharge planning provided by the home health agency staff serving as liaisons for their respective home health agencies. In 2017, four California nursing homes agreed to pay up to $6.9 million to resolve allegations that the nursing home employees used their corporate credit cards to pay for gift cards, massages, tickets to sporting events, and even a cruise given to discharge planners at an area hospital to induce patient referrals to the nursing home. And just last year, April 2021, we saw the owner of a California home health agency and hospice plead guilty and was sentenced to 18 months in prison because the kickback statute has a criminal side to it in connection with kickbacks paid to discharge planners and case managers of hospitals. And in case you're wondering, the hospital and skilled nursing facility employees who received the kickbacks also pled guilty to their roles. Yeah. And I would say, too, that the enforcement action examples that Shannon just gave highlight the importance of training hospital discharge planners and the importance of reinforcing the message that when in doubt, if something could raise, raise steerage concerns or if something just doesn't feel right to reach out to compliance. Always good for people to know that they can and should reach out whenever there's a question uh, of what's right and wrong in a given situation. So let's move on to a related issue, which is patient charting. What is it and what should we be on the lookout for? Yeah, sure, Adam. So as with patient steering, there's not one universal definition of, quote, patient charting. Generally speaking, however, patient charting is a form of improper patient solicitation or, quote, trolling, in which one healthcare provider allows another healthcare provider access to the first healthcare provider's patient medical records to, quote, mine for patient data and or otherwise identify and, so and solicit potential patients for referral. So conceptually, patient charting can raise concerns relative to compliance with patient privacy laws and possible violations of the anti-kickback statute. As it relates to patient privacy, HIPAA, the federal privacy law, must be considered when hospitals and PAC providers are sharing patient identifiable information, or PHI. So sharing a PHI between hospitals and PAC providers when necessary for treatment of shared patients will generally not raise concerns under HIPAA. An example here might include sharing necessary PHI to transfer a patient at discharge to a skilled nursing facility. By contrast, where we can have HIPAA violations and reportable breaches is if a hospital grants a staff member of a PAC provider, such as a SNF or a hospice, access to the medical records of the hospital patients solely for purposes of mining or to identify potential patients for referral. This type of granting of access to view medical records um, could raise concerns with uh, patient charting. Shannon, any thoughts to add there? Just a quick thought that patient charting also raises potential concerns under the anti-kickback statute. And where we saw it come up very recently was in a 2021 court case where the court held that where a third party paid to gain access to patient files of another party, um, basically using it to data mine, looking for data, um, the court held that the payments that the third party made to gain access was actually it supported a theory of referral under the anti-kickback statute. So just another way to think about um, how patient charting can raise a risk for an organization. 
That's a, a good warning there. And, and leads into my last question, really. Any final tips for compliance teams? Uh, Beth, why don't we start with you? Sure, Adam. Yeah, hospitals and PAC providers can successfully work together without running afoul of the laws implicated by patient steerage and patient charting activities that we just discussed today. We kind of came up with a do's and don'ts list, so to speak, to help PAC providers and hospitals develop compliant practices and avoid violations of the law. So here are some do's. Make sure all arrangements with referral sources are in writing and that they are reviewed and approved by compliance and or legal prior to entering into the arrangement, even those without any monetary compensation. Do pay fair market value for items and services received from providers for which you are a referral source. And finally, do look for innovative ways to collaborate to improve care and achieve shared objectives without engaging in improper patient steerage or patient charting activities. Shannon, any don'ts? I have a few don'ts. First and foremost, don't offer gifts to actual or potential sources of patient referrals. And on the flip side, don't accept those gifts either. Also, don't accept free or reduced cost staff or services from any healthcare provider in a position to receive referrals from your organization. If an arrangement seems too good to be true, it probably is talk to compliance or legal. Don't grant access to your patient's medical records to staff from other providers without confirming that such access is consistent with HIPAA and other laws. And don't specify or otherwise limit the qualified post-acute care providers that are available to patients. The bottom line is that these hospital post-acute care provider relationships create both opportunity and risk. And we've touched on just two of those risk areas today during this podcast. Well, thank you for doing that. I think it's been a very illuminating conversation on this issue. Um, I also want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Schertletaup from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective. <laughs>